Well, hey, my name is uh, Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis Church. And I got to tell you something. You owe yourself a big hand because you survived Polar Vortex 2014. Would you give yourselves a hand for that? All right. You made it through. And uh, great to have everyone back, and it's good to see the snow uh, going away. We're done with it, right? All right, let's move on uh, to the spring. Well, we've been in this series here at Genesis, really a unique series. Uh, the past couple of weeks, a series called Guardrails. Uh, what's a guardrail? Uh, you're familiar with them. A guardrail is a system. It's a device uh, designed to protect you and your car from drifting off into dangerous or off-limits uh, sort of areas. There are guardrails everywhere. They're all across uh, Indiana. In fact, I'm guessing that they took quite a beating uh, this past week with all of the hazardous roads and, and, and the uh, driving that was affected by it. I, I'll tell you about one time I, I was uh, most appreciative of guardrails. Uh, some buddies and I, we were skiing out in Winter Park, Colorado, and you got to cross the Rockies uh, to get out into Winter Park, Colorado, and we had finished skiing for the day, and we started a 25-mile drive, two-lane road, back across the Rockies to I-70, and it's a narrow road. It's a narrow road of switchbacks and tight curves and large drop-offs, and, and thankfully guardrails everywhere. Well, we made this drive while it was snowing, and it's the winter, and it's slick, and oh, by the way, we were in a Dodge Neon, all right? Now, nothing wrong with the Dodge Neon, but I've I'm, I, I really don't think that the Dodge engineers went out to this particular road one day in the past and thought to themselves of all of the conditions that could be experienced in the winter and the tight curves and the drop-offs and thought to themselves, I got it, the Dodge Neon, perfect, you know, for these sort of driving conditions. And, uh, well, I'm here today, uh, and so we made it and, and we're safe. But I was really thankful for those guardrails on that particular day. The whole point of a guardrail is to keep you from experiencing greater damage, or even worse yet, a potential catastrophe. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've been asking the question, what would it look like if we established some personal guardrails, maybe invisible guardrails in some really important areas of our lives, like when it comes to things like alcohol use? I mean, where do you draw the line? Or uh, when it comes to the friends that you choose, or the people that you choose to spend time with, and their influence over you. And so what do those guardrails look like? Uh, how about guardrails when it comes to matters of sex and temptation? I mean, I mean, if you're married, I mean, what does it look like to establish some guardrails when it comes to your interaction with people of the opposite sex, uh, people that you work with, maybe people especially that you might be attracted to? Or how about guardrails in your dating relationships? Uh, so that if you're single, I mean, you just establish these guardrails that are designed to protect you and your health and the relationship or maybe your marriage one day. And so what if you establish, what if I establish some invisible guardrails, some lines and boundaries in your life and in my life so that you'd be able to look at them and say to yourself, you know what, I'd better not cross that line. Like, I've put this line here for a reason, and so my goal is to stay as far back from this line as possible because if I cross that line, well, I got an idea of what might happen. You know, when our driving, they put guardrails along dangerous areas to keep you safe, but that doesn't mean you want to hit them either, right? I mean, the goal isn't to see how close you can get to a guardrail, because if you hit a guardrail, you're going to do some damage to your car or even worse yet, your body. And so, again, the, the goal of an invisible guardrail, like a physical guardrail, is to not see how close you can get to it, but instead ask yourself, what's a reasonable distance to maintain from this guardrail that I've established in my life for this particular area? Because here's what you already know. And here's what I already know. You know, and I know, that if you cross certain lines in your life, 
you're going to get burned. I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, you're, you're one really poor decision. I'm one really poor decision from inviting chaos into my life. And you know that if you mess up or if I mess up, it's not only going to affect you, but it's going to affect others around you. It's going to affect the people that you love. I mean, your decisions have the potential to mess up not only your life, to, but to mess up the lives of the people that you most love. And I mean, your decisions and my decisions have the potential to make relationships more difficult uh, or even your hopes and dreams maybe less attainable. I mean, the truth is that there are consequences for our decisions. You know that. I've known that. I mean, we've all made decisions in the past that we regret. But what if moving, what if we could make some choices or put some guardrails in place that might help us avoid some of those regrets? I mean, what if you and I, what if we could establish some invisible guardrails, some boundaries in critical areas of life that could protect you from drifting off into dangerous areas that you never really intended to go, or one day, maybe you wish you hadn't? Well, for the past couple of weeks, we've had the privilege of listening in to one of my favorite pastors uh, and author, Andy Stanley, teach by video on the importance of these guardrails. And again, as Ben mentioned, you can catch the link through our e-news or even through our Facebook page and go back and listen uh, to either one of those messages. But today I want to talk to you specifically about establishing a guardrail in your life, a guardrail that has everything to do with how you view your money. Now, I know that anytime the word money comes up in church, some of you immediately think to yourself, why in the world do we got to talk about money uh, at church? Um, well, the Old Testament says a lot about money. The New Testament says a lot about money. Uh, Jesus talked about money more than anything else. And, and I know and I'm sensitive to the fact that whenever we talk about something like money in church, it sets off a whole series of emotions and, and conversations because the truth is that for some of you, you're in some incredible or some really difficult financial stress right now. I get that. I'm sensitive to that. And, and for others of you, maybe you're here today and you and your spouse and your marriage, you don't see eye to eye on this issue. You come, you come at it from two uh, different positions. Some of you hate the money talks. And you've been so close-minded to this conversation for a really long time and you're not open to considering anything else on this matter. And somebody, somebody today is like, oh, of all the days to invite my friend to church, why do we got to talk about money today? Like, why does this have to be the money talk day? I I heard one pastor say it like this, talk about money and you'll drive people away from your church, like that's how you do it. Talk about sex, that brings people in, all right? Well, I got news for you. I'm talking about money today, but don't go anywhere because Steve Wallen's going to be here next week and he's talking about sex, all right? So stick around and you might find something that you'll enjoy listening about. But let me, let me do this. Let me just set your mind at ease right from the start and it's in your notes. God doesn't want your money. He's after your heart. It's the truth. It's that simple. God's not after your money, but he is after your heart. He's after every bit of your heart and your life. He's most interested in what's going on right here. Now, he's most interested in your devotion and your loyalties and the way that you're living your life. I mean, God wants something for you, and he wants you to be able to say with all of your life that you trust him. And he wants you to understand and realize that because everything belongs to him, it all comes from him. And because he is the great provider, our God wants to give you a peace that is like nothing else, a peace of mind that he will provide for you in anything and everything. And he wants your full attention. He wants our absolute devotion. I mean, he, wants, he wants to be the first priority in your life. He wants you to be able to say that he indeed is the Lord of my life and all things. But here's what God knows. 
And here's what he knows about me, and here's what he knows about you, and it's been true of all humanity since the very beginning of times. God's chief competition for your heart and your life is not the devil. It's your money. God's chief competition for your heart and my heart, for your loyalty and my loyalty, is not the devil. It's your money. And here's how Jesus addressed this. And make sure that you see the tension in this verse. You know, these words come right out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He was speaking to a whole crowd of people. And he said these words 2,000 years ago. Again, talking to a large group of people. Speaking about loyalty. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't. You can try. But no one can faithfully serve two masters. I mean, it's not like some of you so-called IU fans that root for IU basketball and Notre Dame football. I mean, you've got two loyalties somehow, and you root for both. Jesus said, you can't do that, all right? When it comes to me, when it comes to living for me and serving me, you can't do that with Jesus. He doesn't give us that option, and he wants nothing less than our total devotion. And so Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. And then he continues. He says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And just so there are no doubts about what Jesus is speaking about here, then he says, you can't serve both God and money. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. And why did he say that? Because it was an issue then, and it's the issue today. And Jesus knows that for so many people, even so many of us here today, that his chief competition for your heart and for your loyalty and for absolute control in life his chief competition is money. I mean, face it, we have this tendency, even as Christians, to make it all about money and to put our faith and our hope in money. I mean, so, and so money for us, it becomes this God substitute and we elevate money or we at least elevate the desire for money to a God-like status. But the problem with money is that it's not trustworthy. The, the problem with money is that it's not dependable and it's going to fail you and it doesn't stand or it won't stand the test of time and it doesn't love you. And God loves you, and he is a loving father, and he is a caring father, and he knows what's best for you and me, and he loves to give, and he loves to provide, and he loves to give good things, and at the same time, as followers of Jesus, for those who would say that they're a Christian, he demands, and he expects our full and undivided attention. I mean, he wants your faith to be in him and in nothing else, but money gets in the way. It's his chief competition. And so when it comes to prioritizing or choosing money before God, I think what we do is we do this in one of two ways. Uh, the first has to do with consuming. And consuming means that everything that comes your way or comes my way, we just consume. Uh, we make consuming the priority. And we're, we're great at this as Americans, all right? We're, we're fabulous at, at this concept. I mean, consuming means, it just simply means that all the dollars that come your way uh, become the house, become the condo, become the cars, become the boats, become the toys, uh, become the vacations, become the bills. I mean, it's all about living it up, uh, refusing to go without, and getting everything we feel like we want or we ever need. And when it gets out of control, what it does is it usually leads to crippling debt. 
And so there's consuming, but the other side of it too is there is hoarding. And if consuming is all about spending, then hoarding is all about saving. It's about accumulating and securing and growing and, and protecting. The question becomes how much can I acquire or how rich can I, can I really get? And this really becomes the drive or the motivation behind everything that we do in life. And so there's consuming and there's hoarding. And when either is the priority, guess what they both have in common? They're very me-centered. They're very self-centered. I mean, when consuming is your priority or hoarding is your priority, it leaves you living as if there is no God. And both ways of living are basically fueled by the very same thing. They're fueled by greed. And uh, the definition of greed, I love how Andy Stanley defines it. He defines it this way. He says, greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed says, it's my money. It belongs to me, and I'll decide how I'm going to use it. You know, greed is when I determine that anything that comes my way is mine. It's all about me. And really, when you think about it, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. I mean, you can be rich and greedy. Uh, you can be poor and greedy. I mean, I'm greedy when I put all of the attention on me and what I want and what I need and what I believe that money can provide and what it can do for me. When I'm greedy, money becomes like a god, and it takes first priority in my life. And be careful, because it doesn't mean that you don't believe in God, right? I mean, you can love money. You can put your faith in money. You can put your hope in money and still believe in God. But when money is the priority in your life, you can't truly follow Jesus. And when money and greed rule your life, then Jesus doesn't. And that's why Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And so we'll try. I mean, we'll try this as Christians. And we'll go to church and we'll do the right things and we'll say the right things and we'll sing the songs and we'll throw a few bucks in the plate every once in a while. But I read an article the other day that said something like in 2013, uh, early estimates show that 2.5% of Christians tithed last year. 2.5%. I mean, for so many people, I mean, so many Christians... We just get stuck living in this life of disobedience, especially when it comes to this area of money and resources and finances. And for too many people, when it comes to money, even Christians with money, we just say, you know what, this is an off-limits area. Like, God, I'm great with everything else, and I love that you sent your son for me and that he died on the cross for me, but I think I know a little bit better in this area uh, of money and finances. And so I'm going to do it my way because I believe that I know better than you, God. And so when it comes to our money, when it comes to our finances, we we choose to live our way rather than God's way until there's a problem, until there's a crisis. And what we often do is then we go looking to God to get us out of the place that we're in. I don't know if you saw an article, a story, a news story that was kind of happening around Christmas, and it's been resolved since, but I think it's a great story. And uh, it talks about this uh, ship, this tourist ship. Uh, that ventured down to Antarctica. That's a great cruise, right? I'm sure you can get a great deal on a cruise like that, a time of the year like this. But uh, uh, anyway, the, uh, it, got, it got stuck in the ice. The article, it just opens like this. It says, passengers and crew who set off on an expedition uh, are ringing in the new year in the same place where they've been the past week, stuck in ice at the bottom of the world. Something like 74 scientists and teachers and crew members uh, aboard this Russian ship uh, got stuck right before Christmas, and uh, there were a number of attempts to rescue this ship, different icebreakers that were sent in that could never quite get all of the way there, and so 
the people were stuck, but there wasn't a, a lot of alarm. There was a, several weeks of resources aboard the ship. In fact, the article says the ship has two weeks' worth of fresh food, uh, but one spokesperson said um, we've only got a little bit of alcohol left uh, to ring in the t 2014. So I think that was the uh, number one priority. But again, there were all these attempts to, to get in with these icebreakers and re uh, rescue the ship. And to my knowledge, it, it's still there. The people have since uh, been rescued by helicopter. But there was one line in the article that I thought was so good and so true and uh, just a, a spokesperson for this particular uh, expedition commented uh, on the trip and on the ship getting stuck and all these people. And he said this, he says, hey, we're stuck in our own experiment. Stuck in our own experiment. You know, when it comes to money, there are so many people in our country today, so many Christians that are simply stuck and their own financial experiment. I mean, think about this. Do you have any idea how many of the problems in our country and in our community and in our lives come from the misuse or overemphasis or faith that we put in money? I mean, we get stuck in our own experiment and our own way of doing things. And as Christians, it's not just a matter of wise stewardship or planning. It's a heart matter, too. I mean, it's a matter of devotion and loyalties. I mean, we make money our God, and we push the Lord to the side, and we're so arrogant to believe that we know what's best, and then what typically happens is that we get stuck in our own experiment, and then we go looking for God to get us out and make it right. And so let me just ask the question that I asked at the top of the message. I mean, why in the world talk about money in church? Well, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who have come to Genesis, who have said things like, you know, one of the things that I love about Genesis is you talk about things that really matter to my life, that, that I'm facing each day or each week, things that really apply. And so why talk about money? And it's important. Like, this is relevant. I mean, the, the misuse and overemphasis that we put on money is so out of order. And Jesus talked about money more than anything else because he knew what is still true today, that your money is God's chief competition for your heart. I want to add this. God's not angry with you. Um, he's not disappointed in you or upset with you by any means in this matter. And because he's a loving father and he wants what's best for you, I mean, when it comes to your life and the issue of money, you need to know that he's got something special in mind for you, for all of your life. I mean, he wants to protect you. And what he wants to do is to break the power of greed that can easily take hold of my life. I mean, he wants, to, he wants to guard you and me from the pitfalls that come from an over-dependence on money. He wants to be your provider. He wants to be your pr protector. Uh, God still wants to be your savior, and he doesn't want you putting your faith in money because he knows that there is no hope in money. And you know what? I've got a hunch that most of you know that to be true as well. Hey, and if you call yourself a Christian, man, we've got to remember and realize that he... He demands your absolute loyalty and your complete devotion. He gives us no other option. And so for those of you that are here today who are ready to say that you belong to Jesus, and for those of you who are ready uh, to do something that demonstrates your complete devotion and trust in God in anything and everything, especially in this area of finances, I believe that a life like that begins when we may regularly make it a practice. It's a life where you practice, and it's in your notes. A life of giving first. It's just a life where we make it a practice to give first. Not second. Uh, not third. Uh, not if there's a bonus or a little bit left over. 
but God's people, God's children make it a habit to give first, and then you save, and you live off of the rest. God's plan. I believe that his desire for you and me is a life marked with generosity, and on a very practical level, giving means that when you get paid, the very first check you write, the very first gift you give is back to God as a way of honoring him. You give a percentage of what God has given you, you give it back to him because it all belongs to him and he gives to us for all things. You do that first and then you save and you live off of the rest. You give as a way of saying, you know, again, God, it all belongs to you. It's yours. I'm not going to be ruled by my stuff. I do not serve these things, but instead I serve the one who gave his life for me. And because of that, I give to God first. Giving first is about putting God at the top. It's about making him the top priority. It's about putting him in the center. And it's a way of demonstrating that he is your priority and that your faith is in him and in nothing else. And here's what God knows. Here's what God knows. He knows that giving first, what it does is it gets my heart moving in the right direction. It's get my, it gets my heart following after him and, and of those things that are from him. And so I give first and then I save and live off of the rest. Can I tell you something? No one ever taught me how to do this. Um, I, I grew up in a, a great church. I grew up in a great family, but no one sh ever showed me how to live uh, like this. And so Jenny and I, my wife and I, we had to learn how to do this on our own. And when we were first married, uh, we did a lot of saving and we did a lot of spending. And once in a while, we might throw a few dollars in the plate at church, but we weren't giving first. Uh, we weren't tithing. Uh, we weren't percentage givers by any means. But then I became a pastor. And I realized that I didn't have an excuse anymore. And thankfully, the question didn't come up in the interview at the church that I was serving at the time for whatever reason. But it was at that point that I realized, okay, we have an obligation now to start giving first, to start practicing this if we're going to encourage other people to do the same. And so 14 years ago, we started giving first. We started tithing. And can I tell you something? It was hard. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, it was hard, and it was challenging, and it took time, and it took a lot of discipline, and it took a lot of faith, and, and there were times that I was angry, and there were times that I wanted to give up, but can I tell you something? Now, 14 years later, um, by the grace of God, Jenny and I have learned the importance of giving first and tithing every month, and I've got zero regrets, no regrets. Uh, and I can honestly say that giving first has made all of the difference in my life and all of the difference in my relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And don't in any way make me your hero on this. Uh, don't make me your example to look to because I've got a long ways to go in this area. And if I'm absolutely transparent with you, there are still days when my heart gets really ugly uh, on a matter even like this. But I can't even begin to imagine where I'd be in my life right now. Um, I can't imagine the joy I would have missed out on by not contributing to God's work through a church like this one. I, I can't imagine uh, missing out on the blessings that God has returned to me. I have zero regrets when it comes to giving to God first. And I know that for many of you, you feel the exact same way and you've experienced similar and different blessings in your life in so many of ways and, and can tell a great story. My regret is only that I didn't start doing this sooner. And that's why Jenny and I, we're teaching our children to do this now. Um, I've got three kids, five, eight, and 10, and we're teaching them the importance of giving first now. Now I might say that and you might think to yourself, wow, Paul, like the Genesis church really hard up on their dollar 18 a month, you know, that they're gonna put in the offering bag? No, not at all. But 
I know what it, I know what it can do for their heart. And we know what we want for our kids' lives, and that is that we want them discovering the value of generosity now. We want them to experience what it means to trust God now with their life. And Jenny and I can't help but wonder what it might mean for their relationship with the Lord if they learn the value of devotion and dependence on God at this age. I mean, I want my, my, my children living their lives for Jesus and for nothing else, and I, I want them to develop a heart of generosity before we set them loose in this world, and I want giving first to be a habit that they learn while they're at home and then something they can practice for the rest of their lives. And what I'm learning and what I'm teaching my children, I just want you to know that as your pastor, I want that for you too. I want you to discover the benefits of giving first, of, of putting your first priority in the Lord and that he provides and what it means to grow in your faith and to grow in your love for him and to see the purpose of giving to his work in a church like Genesis and in this community and around the world. I mean, God, God, God wants you to experience the joy of trusting him for everything in your, you need in your life. And do you want that? I just wonder if there's any part of you today that says, you know what, I want that, and I want to live like that. And, and if it's true, consider Jesus' words and what this could mean for your life this year. Look at, look at that verse again in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Um, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And now skip over a few verses to verse 31. Same message, same group of people. Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? You know, up to this point, Jesus has been talking about the importance of undivided loyalty and how God plays the role of provider for us, how he, unlike money, is the only reliable provider. And so Jesus says, don't worry. Like about all of those things that you're going to need in life, don't worry about those things. Jesus says, worry has no place in the life of a follower of Christ. I mean, there's no room for it. Have faith in God. Don't set your life in worry. And then he continues in verse 32. He says, for the pagans, that means that anyone who is outside the body of Christ or anyone who loves money or where money is the priority, he says, pagans run after all these things. And he says, and your heavenly father knows what you need. I mean, if you're a Christian, you belong to God. I mean, you belong to the king. I mean, we have a favored relationship with the king, and he is a king who loves to give, and he loves to give, he, and he has called us to give because he gives, and he wants, us to give, he, he wants to give us lives that are fulfilling and lives full of purpose and satisfaction and joy. Again, most importantly, God wants your heart. He's after your heart and your complete devotion and loyalty. And so listen to Jesus' instruction for us. Listen, listen to his words for his children, for you and me. These, these words are for anyone who say, I'm a Christian, and I want to set my heart in following no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, his will, his priorities, Everything else will be given to you as well. And how do we get started in practicing this? I believe it begins when we give first. I mean, when you make God the top priority in your life and decide it's not going to be money. See, again, it's a matter of priorities. 
You know, those who serve money and comfort and security and possessions seek money first. But followers of Jesus honor God first. And we honor God first by giving to him first. And, and Jesus knew then, he knew what is still true today, that money is God's chief competition for your heart and my heart. And he knew that giving first gets our heart moving in the right direction, in God's direction. I mean, giving first is a way of saying it all comes from him, it all belongs to him. Giving first is a way of acknowledging our God as our faithful provider. And it's a way of, of proving that your heart and your devotion are in him and in nothing else. And so how do we get our heart moving in God's direction? We give first and then save and live off of the rest. And, and if you're not doing this, you know, maybe the question for you is how do you get started in that? Well, I want you to know in advance that we're going to talk about giving and we're going to talk about generosity and how to do it and why it matters uh, in a couple of weeks. But just a, a quick preview uh, in that, if you've been around here for any time at all, you know that when we've talked about matters like these, uh, one of the illustrations that we come back to time and time again is just this principle of 10, 10, 80. Uh, it's in your notes, but it's just this, you know, what if I live my life according to a plan, something like this, that uh, I give to God first with the 10%, um, I save 10%, and then you live off of the remaining, you live off of the 80%. And at the simplest level, um, it just goes something like this, that Every time you get 10 of these, these are 10 $1 bills, you take one and you give to God first. You take the second and you say, I'm going to put this into some sort of savings plan. Um, and then that leaves eight to live off of. Uh, it's all about giving first. Uh, the first goes to God and then saving and then I live off of the rest. Now, I know any time that I say something like that, some of you think to yourself, okay, well, but if you're going to be wise about it and really plan for the future, you've got to save more than 10%. And that may be true. And so if you decide, well, I want to save two of these, well, you still give God to God first with the one, and then you live off of seven of them. We give first, you save and then you live off of the rest. And again, we're gonna talk about this a little bit more in a couple of weeks, um, helping some of you uh, maybe understand uh, what it means to get started in your giving, the blessings of giving or restarted in giving and why it matters and the difference it can make uh, when you make that decision in your life to invest in God's work uh, through a church like Genesis. But until then, um, here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. Um, and you consider this for yourself and for your family wherever you are as a way of avoiding the pitfalls of greed and trust in anything other than God. Make up your mind and take a shot at giving to God first. That means that whenever you get paid, the very first thing that you do is give a percentage to God. You give a percentage to your church, and if Genesis is your church, you give to Genesis. And around here, uh, we like to teach, we like to say that we believe that generosity begins at 10%, and so maybe that's the starting place for some of you. But we also realize, I also realize that for some people, that's too great of a leap if you've never done anything like this before in your life. And so I would just challenge you to think about what that is for you and maybe set a percentage right now and say, okay, God, I, I'm going to start with this, but I'm going to keep trusting you as I grow in this area. But you make a decision to give first and then save and live off of the rest. And I would just challenge you to do that. I mean, set a percentage, no matter whether you're in middle school, high school, college, uh, whether you're single, uh, whether you're married, no matter how much or how little, 
you might make. But what would it look like for you and for your heart and for your faith to give first, to save, and then to live off of the rest? Remember this. God doesn't need your money. He's after your heart. Uh, He's after your faith and your full devotion. And in return, man, he wants to give you a peace of mind that he will provide for anything and everything you might need. He loves you. He's not disappointed in you. And he's not out to get you or to shame you if you've never done this before or if you quit doing it a long time ago. But he invites us to give first. And he invites us to give because that's who he is. He's the one who gave first, who gave his son, Jesus Christ. He gave his son to die for you and to die for me because he loves you.